Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I hope you had a good night. That's cool. Anybody have any insights? <laughs> so, uh, does anybody have any questions or uh, comments they'd like to make to do with our discussion last night before we begin today? So, well, let's let's talk about inside experiences versus inside. So. Just as a sort of preamble to this, you have, you have a view of how things are, of a model of reality in your mind, as we talked about last night. Um, you didn't create that entirely by yourself. Everyone around you, your culture, society, has played a really big role in, in determining exactly how you see reality. And most of your life, your mind has been functioning, you know, we think of our mind as an instrument that seeks out the truth about the world around us, but it, it functions in another way, and it probably is the more predominant function, is a filter. It filters out everything, well, it filters out everything that's irrelevant and not useful. But also, as you build up this model of reality, it starts more and more filtering out anything that doesn't fit. Right? So, here's, here you are, living in a reality that you believe is in a particular way, and it's not really that way, and what your mind is doing is, is protecting its own model of reality by trying to uh, either blind itself to, or rationalize away, or just discount in some way or another anything that doesn't fit. Now, an inside experience—an <clears throat> inside experience—is an experience that doesn't fit. I mean, we could define that as an inside experience. You something registers in your consciousness that, if you allowed it to, would be glaringly out of place in terms of your model of reality. And that's what makes it an inside experience. But, as I've just said, we have, we have lots of ways of avoiding inside experiences and until, until the disparity becomes big enough that it, you know, it kind of, you know, the, 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 how do you get a mule's attention? You hit them in the head with a two-by-four. So, when reality hits you in the head with a two-by-four, that's the first time that you're willing to look at these disparities. Some people know this. I, I, there are some people that have perceptions of the way things are that are quite different than other people, are quite different than what is the accepted norm. And they've learned to keep their mouth shut. Right? Uh, sometimes they can use the understanding that this gives them uh, in, in beneficial ways, but, they, but they've learned that there's only certain people that they can communicate the fact with that, that they're having a little bit different experience of reality than everybody else seems to be. And 
you have to face it. Your mind is never going to create a model of reality that is totally accurate. Or for that matter, your human mind is never going to come up with a model of reality that even vaguely comes close. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll tell you a reason why I say this. Is granted, right now, in this moment, the human mind is the most sophisticated mental operation that we know of. Uh, but if we go back a hundred million years ago, there was something else, not quite as sharp, that was um, was the best mind around. And if we go back 200 million years ago, then the best mind around was nowhere near as good as it was 100 million years ago, which is hardly a scratch on our great, fantastic human mind. <coughs> and presumably, <coughs> if the evolution of mind and consciousness continues on more or less the same path that it has, in the future there will be far more sophisticated minds than ours. And uh, that could probably go, along, go on for a very long time. So it is mere hubris, pride, uh, anthropocentric uh, uh, species egotism that would have us believe that maybe our mind could really get a handle on the greater reality that we're a part of. Okay, so what we're what we're talking about are <clears throat> no matter how good the model of reality is in anyone's mind, it falls far short of the reality itself. And um, that being the case, you can expect that any person they're constantly going to be having experiences that cannot be adequately incorporated into their model of reality, right? So, this is already, what I'm saying to you right now, I'm sure, is already a challenge to your model of reality. If you can follow what I'm saying, and I think you can, and I think you are, then you're actually having an insight experience. You're saying, that, oh, the way I go through my life seeing things is probably not a very accurate description of how things really are. Because I think I've pretty well got it figured out how things work here. And so now you're being confronted with the idea that, whoa, <laughs> maybe I don't. And maybe I never will. Maybe I never can. So really what we're doing is we're trying to we're trying to improve our model of reality. We're trying to improve our worldview, worldview to make it better so that it works better for us individually and actually for all of us collectively. And that's the project, right? There's way too much suffering. If we could get to that place where we can transcend it, it doesn't matter if we don't have a perfect understanding of reality. It, if you, if you could get to a place where you have transcended suffering, <clears throat> your life is completely meaningful, you are happy, uh, would you mind that much that you don't have a perfect model of reality in your mind? <laughs> no. And, and that's, that's where we're...
trying to, that's, that, that's where we're going. That's where we're going. And what I just described to you is actually one of the most fundamental insights that you'll need to grasp, is that it's just that simple, <coughs> that however you think things are, that's not how they are. In Buddhism, that's called emptiness. <laughs> however you think things are, that's not really how they are. And once you grasp that at the deepest level, so that you no longer walk around with the expectation that you really know how things are, that's enormously helpful. It, it opens you up. It allows you to become a part of the much larger process rather than being this isolated piece that thinks it's got a handle on things and keeps struggling with the rest. Because it doesn't. So, insight experiences, an insight experience is just something that if you were to actually pay attention to it, would force you to recognize that you don't have it figured out. That's an insight experience. It's not the same as an insight. And most insight experiences do get ignored. But even when you have an insight experience and it becomes an object of attention and you contemplate it, it will not necessarily lead to insight. It will only lead to insight if you make it into a, a problem that your mind needs to solve. You have to get to the place where you say, okay, I've had this experience and it doesn't fit. I need to figure out why, or at least I need to find a way to make it fit. Once you reach a point where you've got, you've created a problem, I have to adjust my worldview so this piece of information now works. That is an inside problem. Your mind is the most fabulous problem-solving device that's ever come into existence so far although that may change, will change. But right now, it's the best. So I guarantee you that any time <coughs> you formulate an insight problem like that, your mind is going to find a solution. It is going to find a way to reconcile the, this disparity between this experience you've had and the way that you think things are. And when it succeeds, then you had insight. And it's not necessarily a final insight, because it may work for the time being, but then another experience will come along and you'll find, no, it still doesn't work. So that's, that's insight experience, that it has to be held, it has to become a focus of attention, it has to be acknowledged that there's something that doesn't work. And when it's acknowledged that something doesn't work, then your mind begins seeking solutions. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to point out that you're all here as a result of having had a kind of insight experience that has created for you an insight problem that your mind is in the process of trying to resolve. 
And <coughs> this is something that is said in the tra traditional Buddhist literature, and I come to realize this really how true it is, that we all come to Dharma as a result of having had insight experiences that direct us towards one of three kinds of insight. We come, and, and when I say dharma, I mean any, any spiritual path. We become seekers after truth because either, number one, we have found ourselves in direct conflict with the fact of <coughs> impermanence, that there, there are no things. There's only flux and change. Some of you, that's what brought you here. You find life is just this constant struggle. Everything changes. It's like you're on quicksand. It's like you're treading water. No matter how hard you tread water, you still got to keep treading. Everything keeps changing. There's nothing you can hold on to. Every time you think you've got this right or that right, you know, whether it's the partner or the job or your kids or your house or, or whatever, something changes. You lose it. You know, and this impresses you, uh, and it's a problem, and it makes you into a seeker after the truth. Right? That's one. Others of us, and I'm one of these. It's the experience that nothing's the way it appears to be. Where is the truth? Everybody has different ideas of the way everything is, and then oh, there's conflict, and it's not just conflict of ideas, it's, it's conflict of people and conflict of nature and nations and it's all kinds of conflict. Nobody can agree on what the truth is. You try to find the truth and you try to find something, you try to, to unravel it, you try to find the root of the mystery and, and no, it's like chasing after shadows that as soon as you start to find one or the other uh, and you start to hold on to it, it evaporates like a will of the wisp. This is what I went through, included in the handout a quote from Shakespeare that uh, at, at one point in my life this is this is exactly as a matter of fact when I was about 18 years old I wrote a little thing that was uh, it was much longer than this and it was kind of a a modern context, you know, of, uh, of a city street. But to express the same idea, this is from Macbeth. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player, that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying that. <laughs> <laughs> And I, well, that's what brought me searching for some kind of truth. Before the Dharma, I went to science, looking for the same thing. I want to know the truth. I, I've got, I got to find something that I can have faith in and confidence in. And you know, if I, I just knew if I find the starting point, that from that starting point, I could build up an understanding that that would give me that kind of security that I needed. Well, that's emptiness that experience that everything looks different to everyone and they can argue all about it forever and you can look for truth in every place that you choose to look but um, 
every time you think you've got it, you find out you haven't. <laughs> That's another thing that brings us to the Dharma. The third thing is suffering. And it can be predominantly our own suffering, but very often it's all the other suffering in the world around us. And, uh, it can begin to seem like there is, there really is some kind of evil in the universe. That there's, that that there is some some quality or property or entity, a, you know, a, a Satan or whatever it is, but some kind of evil principle of evil in the universe that just is always going out there, and penetrating into everyone and everyone's lives and into everything, and and. Turning, turning the good into bad and turning the pleasure into suffering and so forth. Um, that, that too is a, that, that's a rough, one of the roughest uh, gateways to go through. But actually it's very interesting how many of the Holocaust survivors, you think of Viktor Frankl, do you know who Viktor Frankl is? And people like that, there are quite a number of people like that who their world seemed to be permeated by evil. It made them search for something else, and it turned them into really incredibly remarkable people as a result. But suffering is another thing that brings us, and whether it's the suffering of the world or whether it's your own personal suffering. But we become seekers after the truth, looking for some kind of answer, some kind of understanding hopefully some kind of release, but at least some sort of explanation for why it is the way it is. And so, uh, you're all here for some reason, and I would imagine that um, you can each probably identify more strongly with one of the other of these. Whichever one may be strongest, the others quickly follow. They're all connected. They're not, they can't be separated from each other. And most likely, you follow this path of insight to its end. Whichever one has brought you to this room now, that's probably the one that's going to lead the way to uh, to your ultimate awakening. Uh, that is that that's just part of how it works. So, if, if you know yourself, why you're here then you also have a taste of what the experience is that's going to finally give you the answer that you've been, that you've been looking for and hoping for. So what, what I want you to do, what the Buddha wants you to do, what you need to do, is you need to learn to recognize and appreciate insight experiences. And then you need to learn how to cultivate the insight. And that, that means that you have, when you have an insight experience, you need to see that not as a problem to be avoided, but something to be embraced. Because, it, because embracing the experience is the key to putting your mind to work, to generating the insight. 
So in that way, you will cultivate the insight, and then over time, you will you will be progressively transformed until ultimately, you are you are beyond suffering. You are you are able to rejoice in emptiness rather than struggle against it. That you are thankful for impermanence rather than experiencing it as a problem and a challenge. And it, it is a, a progress, and it, it uh, takes place over many, uh, many different stages. But it doesn't need to take that long. And I think knowing where you're going and knowing how the process works will help a lot to speed you up in your journey. Uh, you can, you can discover these things without any any coaching, but. Just the simple fact that most people don't shows you how unlikely it is that you're going to. So to have a little bit of guidance and direction makes an enormous difference. So, I've said several times, we have inside experiences all the time. You're f familiar with Leonard Cohen? The song Anthem? You know what he's talking about there? Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Right. Those cracks, those are the inside experiences. And the light, the light, that's the truth on the other side of the delusion that you're holding. So. And um, He continues, we asked for signs, the signs were sent, the birth betrayed, the marriage spent, yea, the widowhood of every government, signs for all to see. That's how the light gets in. That's, yeah. So, so, so we, 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 have, we have insight experiences available to us. We don't usually recognize them or appreciate them for what they are. We give them the respect or use them in the way that we can, and, and that's what we want to change. The way that this, the way that this will proceed is as your mindfulness improves, and this is the thing, you have to become mindful. You have to stabilize your attention. You have to increase the power of your awareness, and that's what mindfulness is. As you become mindful, you start noticing the cracks. One kind of crack is the kinds of problems that you have over and over again. The kinds of emotional upsets that you experience repeatedly. The kind of situations that always set you off in the wrong way. And every single time one of these events has happened, <coughs> there you had, that was one of those cracks. And what we tend to do, of course, is we don't recognize it and appreciate it for what it is. It's just, oh no, this thing happened again. Oh well, it's not my fault or whatever. And what mindfulness allows you to do is to realize in the moment that, wow, here I am with this thing happening again. Here I am feeling terrible again. Uh, everything else, you realize it. And, you, and so you just hold that in your mind. 
that and and that's the problem. Here this thing happened, and now I'm unhappy. That sets that sets the problem up. Why do I need to keep having this happen? And what will happen is, remember, insights happening at an unconscious level of the mind. Did sound just no? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. What you, what you do with your consciousness is you be mindful. You hold this information. You keep paying attention to what's actually happening. And, and of course, a really important part of that is recognizing that it's not serving you. That the way I react in this situation, whether it's what I say and do or whether it's just my emotional reaction, the way I react in this situation is not serving me. It's hurting me. It's harming me. It's not good for me. That sets the problem. And conscious mind starts working away on it. And if you continue to give it information, if you continue to feed the unconscious mind through the conscious mind by using attention and awareness effectively, the information that's necessary is going to be used and insight is going to arise basically in the form that, and and whether you become conscious of it or not is not that important, although you probably will. It's in the form that, that I don't need to react that way anymore. That maybe I react this way because in the past it used to help me to react this way. Maybe when I was very young, or maybe when I was in a different situation. You know, maybe I was in the military and this was good then, but now I'm not, and now it's just hurting me, or you know, something like that. A jillion possible scenarios. But it is the insight that you're operating on a pattern of behavior uh, that no longer belongs, and so that pattern of behavior can be changed and is get cha- does get changed. Insight changes us inside, and that's what's important about it. That would, what I just described would be a kind of change in self-view. Your self-view was, when this happens, I've got to feel this way and act this way. Now your self-view changes so that there's a different possibility of how you can feel and act. It no longer has to be that way. And that's insight doing its work, transforming it. So it starts off the kinds of changes that you have are those things that happen in life situations. Sometimes you're conscious of them, sometimes you're not. But if you continue to be mindful, you have the experience of your life getting better, of you getting along uh, with other people and in different kinds of situations better, and things, certain kinds of things not bothering you as much. Right? Then as, as you continue particularly in meditation, you'll have things that come up from your deep subconscious mind. It's like, these are, these are insight offerings. When you're sitting in meditation, you start having these terrible memories of this situation that you went through when you were 16, coming up. Or powerful emotions. Uh, maybe, for you, fear has been a little bit too much a part of your life all the way along. You've been a fearful kind of person. Now you start having 
intense fear experiences in your meditation. This is all part of the insight process. Your unconscious mind is offering this up in the peace and the stillness of meditation. It's being offered up into consciousness so that it can be shared with other parts of your unconscious mind which can recognize that, hey, this is a problem that needs to be solved. If in meditation you hold these unpleasant visions of the path without judgment and uh, openly and, and gently and allowing them to be there, recognize they have a right to be there and just hold them, they will get resolved. If these emotions come up and you allow yourself to just accept them, sort of get in the place where, okay, I, you can be there, I can be with you, let's, let's see where this goes, then those, that part of your mind that produces those emotions gets reprogrammed, it gets reorganized in a way that that emotion is not the driving force in your life that it once was. These are the kinds of changes that take place at a deeper level, make a more profound change to your personality. But these are all very mundane insights about very mundane things. They are changing the rather superficial aspects of your worldview and your self-view to make things work rather better on a day-to-day -day basis. And they're extremely important and extremely valuable. So much for so much so that you could be very tempted to settle for this. Wow, this this is good stuff. You know, what more do I need than this? But there is more, and that's that's the the deeper insights that would make you into an awakened being that would help to move you completely beyond suffering of every kind. And that's that's kind of the third level, and that's what when we talk about the. 18 knowledges and progressive insight. We're talking about the progression that leads. We're, we've gotten, you know, we're not concerned with, uh, with the improvements in your reaction to various situations. We're no longer concerned with, with remedying a few of your major personality faults that, uh, that get in your way. Now we're going for the root of it what we're after here now is a kind of insight that in its end result is called supra-mundane because beyond the world because it's going to change your model of reality in a way that is no longer it makes it different than how the rest of the world views reality. Any, any comments or questions about this? Yes. I do have one. When you have an insight experience and you get to the point it becomes an insight and you really work with that, is it still a choice? You can say, I do not want to um, integrate it in my life or whatever, I want to act this way? Is well, this yes, as a matter of fact, yes. Because, you see, Your mind is not one thing, it's many things, many processes. And some of them can refuse to get on board and do. 
Now, that's, when you say you making a choice, what it is, it's, it's like the collective. It's like some of the collective is going along with it, and other parts of the collective are resisting it. And I, I talked last night that even when you have a realization, the impact it has is going to depend on, you know, there's the breadth issue, how many different aspects of your psyche it spreads to, and also a depth issue, how, how deeply it goes. And so just as you might have an insight and have an experience of these times when you wish that you had remembered that in insight, but it was not there when you needed it, you can also have those experiences where you know, part of you really knows and understands, but some other part of you is just not going to go along with it, and sometimes that other part is stronger. Well, you see it like it's, it's a negative thing, and you talked about the selective reality we all have. Yeah. So isn't that something which is almost um, unavoidable? We are selective in our minds, whatever, wherever we go. And so when we make a choice more conscious, is that not a step forward? <laughs> is that not a step? A step forward instead of, of pushing yes, it aside, we, well, but we still yes. make it a conscious choice. When we make something conscious, then it becomes shared with the rest of our mind. It becomes available to the rest of our mind to agree with or disagree yeah, okay. with. Uh, and and that is, that's an important part of the process. Um, to go back to an example, uh, 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 a, a fairly uh, it could be very important but it, it, in the larger sense it's a fairly minor insight that uh, a certain kind of situation has always pushed your button and it's all because of what it was like <coughs> going to school where you went when you were uh, in high school right? and you have, haven't got over that you just keep reacting that way that's one small part of your mind. And uh, when it gets the message that the programming that it's been initiating every time you're in that situation is not working, then it stops doing that. The rest of your mind doesn't care. As a matter of fact, the rest of your mind is glad. Wow, this is really nice. Now when that happens, I don't get all ticked off and make a fool of myself. You know, or go home and cry, or whatever it is I was doing. Right? The rest of your mind's flat, all right. But it can be different than that. One part of your mind has an insight. It's a really valuable, wonderful insight. But goes into consciousness and some other part of your mind, it really is in conflict with some other part of your mind, refuses to accept it. Um, we have a lot of that kind of stuff around religious views that we picked up as children, or sometimes cultural views, what's right and what's wrong, what's acceptable and what's not. And part of our mind can come to a realization and insight that, that that all that does is create problems, and it, it's no help at all. And there's no, you know, the, but the other part of the mind, because it's because it is a religious belief, or because it is a deeply instilled cultural belief, refuses to allow that change. And so you'll have a conflict. Um, the conflict will be resolved when that 
part of the mind that insists on holding on to, to these particular views has its own inside experience mm -hmm. that causes it to revise its insistence upon holding on to these things. Mm -hmm. That will make it open to accepting this other insight. So it's a dynamic process. Yeah. I've been thinking about this problem for a couple of years now. Like, why haven't I gotten more out of the insights I had? Because mm -hmm. I'm a pretty insight-oriented person. And for me, what I've realized is that there's a window of opportunity when I have that insight. And I think I haven't applied or practiced enough the change to help overcome the system I have in place already. And then it falls back. Yes, yeah. The, uh, really, you said applied and practice. This is something that's really important. A and that is, when you have an insight, when you have an insight, let's say you have an insight experience, as a result of that you have an insight, it's this precious thing. The best thing you can do is to keep holding that insight in your mind and trying to apply it, deliberately trying to apply it to everything else that you see. Uh, in your meditation, when you have an insight uh, into interconnectedness, and sometimes you just be powerfully feel with a sense, yes, we really are all connected. The best thing that you can do with that is even after the, the intensity of experience is, is gone, if you keep going around and every, everybody you're with, strangers, friends, people you don't like, dogs and cats, it doesn't matter, and saying, oh, is that, that interconnectedness? Yes, yes, can I find it here? Can I, can I identify it here? Is, is, are, are some of the threads visible to me now? That's, that's practicing an insight. Hold it in your mind. As long as it's strong there, then you just hold it in your mind, and that's the most important thing for you to pay attention to and think about and look at from every different direction that you can. And then when it's not so strong, you keep trying to call it back in all kinds of different situations. That's, that's what makes it really strong. We will, you have... You, you will have inside experiences of a very powerful nature in uh, meditation and they'll bring, they'll bring up an insight but unless you work with that insight in the right way you stand at risk of, uh, of having it become compartmentalized and then you spend a lot of time trying to get back to that place. Um, you know, there, there are some powerful insight experiences that are pretty common, and some of you may have had one of them, is uh, the realization that, that everything is conscious, that there's consciousness in everything. Ever had that one? Any of you? And for, for most of us, we have an experience like that, and it's powerful and it's exciting, and it leaves a residue. We never quite forget it. And it does affect us in certain ways. But it just, it never really spreads or sinks. And as time goes by, it becomes this peak experience that once happened to me. And oh, I wish I knew how to get back to that, but I don't. So 
I mean, it does have an effect. Another one is uh, uh, that oneness. I'm one with everything. I'm really not separate. You know, that's a, that's a an experience that many of us have, at some time or another in our life. We may have it more than once, but it's the same thing. It's a powerful peak experience, but we don't know how to work with it. We don't know how to use it. We don't we don't know how to in, incorporate it in in our psyche so that it achieves that breadth and that depth that allows it to always be with us. Um, and so, this is one of the things that we need to learn, not only to, to recognize insight experiences, but when insight arises, how, how to work with that insight so that, so that it becomes really established. This is the word that's used uh, in the traditional literature, is that when you have an insight, the insight must become established. Right? To just have an insight is a good and wonderful thing, and it has a beneficial effect. But to have it become truly established is what, is what we want. Yeah. Um, I remember you saying some years ago about, upon having an insight, at least for me being somewhat cerebral, and many people being somewhat cerebral, there's a tendency to try to establish it by like kind of thinking about it and, and, and going off on it analytically. And I recall you saying something about how that wasn't necessarily helpful because it's kind of recreating all the stuff that had to get out of the way in the first place to even have the insight. Right. So I wonder if you could talk about the distinction with regards to working and establishing an insight between just kind of thinking about it and going off into space with it and right. really applying it and working and how to kind of make that distinction. Okay, yes, that is a good point. You see, the problem is there's, there's part of your... The part of your psyche is the part that usually dominates consciousness, more so in some of us than others. You know, some of us are more heady and uh, analytical. That, what that part of your consciousness will do, it will take an insight, and rather than allowing the insight to, um, what would be the right word to? allowing the insight to teach us, to teach the rest of the mind, it wants to pin the insight down and define it. You know, put it into its, in, into a box <coughs> with proper labels and, and uh, a whole list of, and, and of how this is related to that. Instead of allowing the insight to show us what it is and to show us how it connects to everything and... and <coughs> There's this other part of the mind that wants to grab onto it and label it and categorize it and box it up and package it. And if you let it do that, then right, there's your insight. It's in those boxes. And the boxes may be mislabeled and, you know, it's <laughs> a problem you're going to have to deal with later. Consciously, what you want to do consciously uh, is, and, and you know the difference between these things, I think. Or if you reflect on it, you'll know the difference. When you find your mind analyzing it, deconstructing it and categorizing it, stop it. What you, what you want your conscious mind in, in, to do is you, you want your conscious mind to be like a naturalist in the woods on a strange planet. <laughs> so, wow, 
this is all new and amazing and you're doing nothing but watching and observing and collecting information, right? If you were a naturalist on a strange planet, you'd, you'd be noticing everything. That would be your mental state. You wouldn't be analyzing. You wouldn't be, I mean, you know, on this planet you're just saying, oh well that's a such and such and it's probably related to this and this is what it eats. And You know, you'd be calling on all this other stuff that you already knew trying to explain something, analyze it. You don't want to do that. You want to be a naturalist on a strange planet say, oh wow, I've never seen this before in my hand. Let me allow it to teach me about what it is. And that's what you want to do with insight and consciousness. Yes? Um, what do you do about those ephemeral moments where you, you have an insight for like a fifth of a second just long enough to know, oh, that was important, and then it is completely gone. It is like, what? What was I thinking? What? I, I had the word. I had, and and it just completely vanishes. And and you just have to. There's. I have this suspicion that you know it's repressed because it's just too threatening. So. So it's gone, and you stand there and you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, it'll, it'll come to me, it'll come back, and you try and retrace your steps, and it doesn't come, and it doesn't come, and you know it was important, and that's what you get left holding the bag with, you get nothing. How do you get, how do you get that to come back? Uh, there's only one way that I know. I know what you're talking about. I, I've had that experience. Uh, what you've got to do is do whatever it was You've got to try to go backwards and recall what were you doing, what were you thinking, what was your emotional state, what, what was the combination of mental factors that caused that to come up. And that's the only thing you can do. You know, it's like uh, it's like you leave the cheese on the counter and then when you turn around you see there's a mouse, right? So you turn around, the mouse ran off and hid. You can look for the mouse forever, you'll never find it. But if you put the cheese back on the counter, it's not <laughs> 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 well, like I say, I've, I've, I've left bait. I've, yeah. I've traced yeah. the steps, and and it's 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 tricky. It's like there's a peripheral vision. Yeah. It's like it's like things in the peripheral vision. You'll see brighter at the edge than in the center. Yeah. And you and I I am hunting a yeah. Definitely put the bait back out, but then how do you learn? The, how do you learn not to look? <laughs> well, no, it's uh, what's happening. You've described it very well. It's like something in peripheral vision, and if you focus your eyes on it, then it's gone. Uh, it's attention and it's awareness. Okay, but you have an insight comes up into awareness. I told you this last night. You have lots of insights come up into your awareness, but if, if for whatever reason, just a simple negligence and lack of interest or because it's threatening, if some other part of your mind doesn't want that to become an object of attention, uh, it won't. And, so, and, and that's exactly the kind of thing that happens. Um, you can just try to keep teasing it back. And, and the, thing, the thing is that if you think of reconstruct this experience, okay. An insight comes into peripheral awareness. Um, when, it, when it became conscious in awareness, many different parts of your mind recognized its presence. 
there was a part of your mind that said, wow, this is great, I want to pay attention to it. That's the part you originally mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. You say, oh, wow. But some other part says, no way. Right? And it said it more loudly and more strongly. And it said it strongly enough that wherever that insight came from, it went back to. And it's still there. It's still there, but it's been chased away. So how can you um, sit on the guy who's doing the chasing? I mean, doing the, the pushing away. How can you just... You, you can't sit on the guy that's doing the chasing, but what you can do, the, the part of... You can reflect on it, and the part of your mind that knew that this was something important and wanted to pay attention to it can recruit other parts of your mind. It'll increase... <laughs> so, so next time it comes up, it's not... Next time there's more power on the side of let's allow ourselves to be aware of it. I like that model. Yeah. So that brings up uh, kind of something that actually came up last night, um, and I think you said it again today that you have to bring something into uh, conscious awareness for you to, for other parts of your unconscious, subconscious to be able to work with it. But right. then I think you also said that your subconscious mind, all the parts of your subconscious mind are kind of back there working together. <coughs> so how it's, do both things happen? Okay, it's more like they're working simultaneously. Mm -hmm. you know, oh. Right. So, okay. see, th what consciousness is, mm -hmm. is it is the universal receiver of information from all the different parts of your unconscious mind. Any part of your unconscious mind can project information into it. Uh, so it's a universal recipient, recipient. And also whatever is in consciousness is available to all of the other parts. So it's the means by which it is the means by which the different parts of your unconscious mind primarily communicate with each other. So they don't communicate on their own. There there is there is a kind of undercurrent of communication. Uh, I have to. I have to digress a little bit. Want me to digress a little bit and tell you how there is a way that information does get exchanged, but it's not. Uh, to make a comparison, okay. The conscious mind serves the same purpose that language does, and you and I are talking. I speak, you listen, you speak, I listen. We exchange a lot of highly organized information. At the same time, okay, there can be a subliminal exchange of information through uh, uh, through body language, or even um, it seems through pheromones. You know, you will never be conscious of smelling a pheromone, but it has been demonstrated that the pheromones that my body exudes are going to affect your behavior and your reaction to me and vice versa. So, in terms of the unconscious mind, how this works is you've got two completely separate parts of your unconscious mind. But they are, they're kind of hierarchically organized. There's, there's this, and then there's three, three or four more sub-minds below that, and another dozen sub-minds below that. You get a few levels down, and there's a submind that happens to be level six of this and level three of that. It's shared. So there is a way 
it's sort of like uh, a person that belongs to two different clubs, you know, and the two different clubs never communicate with each other, but one person's a member of both, so there's still some information that goes between them. But all of the important, really important communication that happens in uh, between different parts of your unconscious mind happens through consciousness, and that's the purpose of consciousness. Consciousness allows these different mental processes to work together in an <coughs> integrated fashion to carry out executive functions. I mean, think of how we're built up. You start out a very simple a little jellyfish, it's just a little nerve now, and nervous systems get more and more complex, and your, your brain consists of a tremendous number of separate systems, each with its own job. Uh, and that is the basic structure of your mind. Your, uh, your mind consists of very simple systems with very simple jobs that are organized together to form more complex systems with more complex jobs, and those are organized together to form still more complex systems with still more complex jobs, and, and that's how it's built up. But all these different systems are still separate from each other, and they don't have a way to communicate. That's why consciousness got developed. Right? A very interesting thing would be to try to figure out where, where in the evolution of nervous systems did consciousness first show up. And the answer is, it didn't. It's always been there. It's even present in an atom. That's what holds the electrons and the protons and the neutrons together. Is the same principle that we call consciousness. Of course, I think it would be a bit silly to assume that an oxygen atom has the kind of subjective experience that we do that we call consciousness. But it's exactly the same principle. Consciousness is shared receptivity. And the subjective consciousness that you are experiencing right now is the shared receptivity of all of the different mental processes that make you up. Some of which are my mental processes too, which is part of how we stay connected. That's a digression. <laughs> <laughs> Will you be talking more about shared receptivity this weekend? Probably not unless we have more things like this arise. There's no predicting what's going to happen. <laughs> um, so last night you talked about the, the processes we go through to solve a problem. And so if you have an insight experience but not yet an insight, let's say you're in meditation, you say, oh, wow, this doesn't work, but I don't know why. It seems like your conscious mind is going to want to do its normal processes of, you know, you listed them, the comparisons and the... And I'm wondering, you know, is that something... Do you set that aside for later? In other words, you do you not want to kick off... I mean, I don't know if you even have much choice about it, but do you see what I'm saying? Your conscious mind is going to want to do its thing with the inside experience, but that's not exactly, I mean, you often mention, you know, don't get into the content, and mm -hmm. so could you clarify that? Okay, yeah. Let me give you an, a, a, an example of an inside experience that arises the very first time somebody sits down to meditate and what they do with it. You say, okay, I'm going to pay attention to the sensations of unrest. Good. Easy enough. All right. In, out. And then something happens that's totally unexpected. I was daydreaming about washing my car. 
<laughs> what do you do? Well, that's unexpected. <laughs> that actually is an inside experience. But what you do is it's a problem. You, you say, oh darn, all right, I'm not going to let that happen this time. This time I'm going to stay on the bed. So you go back. But it happens again. It keeps happening over and over again. The same inside experience. But you never see it as an inside problem or try to figure out why it's happening. Until somebody helps to guide you to. And even then, you see, see, the tendency is to brush most inside experiences in meditation off as problems. Like, as uh, not, maybe problem's not even the right word, because I've been using problem as something that you want to solve. Not as, as nuisances, as, as, yeah, something that happens rather than something that I need to understand. But when you start to really understand meditation, it's because you've started to understand that everything that happens in your mind is something that you want to understand. Okay. Now, yes, you might start thinking about that. And that's really good. If you start having a thought, how come, you know, I thought I was in control of my mind. How come, no matter how hard I try, I can't say to my mind, pay attention to this and don't be distracted? And it ignores me. What you've done there is you've set up an insight problem. You realize my mind just won't do what I want it to do. And, and, and I thought I was in control of it. Obviously I'm not. I wonder what's really going on. Now, if you try to figure out what's really going on, you're probably going to waste a lot of time. But if you just allow yourself and say, wow, this keeps happening. I really would like to know what's going on so I could change it. And then go back to meditating. Then the insight happens. And you realize, oh, I can't make my mind do anything. All I can do is try to trick it into doing what I want. <laughs> and that's what you do, is it not? That's how you make progress in meditation. You train it. You, like a puppy dog, you correct it every time it does what you don't want. And uh, you you do little tricks to try to to help make it behave. Like like you say, okay, you want to think, think about the breath. You want to talk, <laughs> talk about staying on the breath. Right? Mm-hmm. We use those kinds of tricks, and they help until up to a certain point we realize we don't need those tricks anymore because now the mind's starting to cooperate. And one of the, one of the most fundamental things is that. The only way you're going to get the different parts of your mind to cooperate in meditation is if those different parts of your mind believe that this is a good, beneficial, satisfying thing to do. And so the more you allow impatience and irritation and frustration and one part of your mind trying to dominate the other part of your mind, the less it's going to happen. It just, you know. All the message you get gets across is meditation is this frustrating, irritating experience. Uh, it requires a lot of discipline and it's no fun at all. And I'd much rather go drink a beer or watch TV. And that's what all the different parts of your mind are saying. You only succeed in meditating when it starts to become somewhat satisfying in one way or another, somewhat enjoyable. And the more enjoyable and satisfying and rewarding it becomes, the easier it becomes. Because all the different parts of your mind are saying, yeah, 
Last time we did this, it was fun. We'll do it again. So, meditation is full of insights, and believe me, everything you do in life is some version of this process. You want things to be in a particular way, it doesn't work. To the degree that you're successful, it's because you figured out how to change the way you look at things, uh, change the way you do things, or whatever, to make it work. And it's the same thing with learning to meditate. <coughs> learning to meditate is an insight process. Yeah? Is, is there something ineffable that's involved in the process of putting yourself in the way of that settledness and peace into which you, you settle when you're when it's no longer an effort to stay focused on the breath. It, it feels like grace to me. It feels like the thing I learned about when I was a kid that's called yeah. grace. Is that something that, that you would Grace is a really good way to, to describe because what is grace? You can't do it yourself. Uh, grace, usually, most of us were taught that grace comes from God. Okay, so I can't do it myself, but through, through the grace of God, it happens. Right? Exactly the same thing's happening in those experiences in meditation. You can't make them happen. The, 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 the willing, egocentric part of your mind cannot make it happen. But it can happen. And it's not, it, it, it feels exactly like through the grace of God. But in this case, uh, looking at it the way that I do, you might say it's through the, through the grace of the, uh, of the other parts of my mind deciding to cooperate. <laughs> <laughs> And they're not cooperating with me. They're cooperating with each other. When you are able to meditate, as a matter of fact, the one part of your mind that says, I'm the one in charge and I've decided meditation is what we've got to do. I mean, <laughs> when they decide to cooperate with each other in this endeavor, that part of the mind's left standing off on the side, you know, strutting back and forth and telling himself how great he is. <laughs> <laughs> It has really nothing to do with it. <laughs> it did. It does happen through grace. All right. Let's see where we're at here. Oh yeah, I could have put this up earlier when I was saying these things. <laughs> Recognize insight experiences. Cultivate kind of insight that profoundly changes your personal reality and be transformed in a way that puts you beyond the, beyond the reach of every kind of suffering makes your life perfectly satisfying and a meaningful experience. Okay, so then I think we're getting close to the point where we might start talking about the progress of insight. So maybe just tell you a little bit about the progress of insight before we get into the progress of insight. Okay? Um, do these 18 points come from um, the, the scriptures? Do they come from somewhere? No, I just made them up. <laughs> 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 
Yes, they, they do. They do. And that was what I was going to tell you about where they come from. Um, the Buddha himself didn't systematically lay these out, but as you'll see uh, as we go through them, he, all of the teachings that he did were guiding people to these insights. And then where this list of 18 first appears uh, is in uh, something called the Vizuni Maga by uh, a, a monk by the name of Buddha Gosa. And this was, don't remember exactly, I think about 800 years or so, uh, maybe even more. I don't even remember. I'm not really good with dates or proper names sometimes. <laughs> but uh, uh, it was, it was uh, quite some time after the passing of the Buddha what Buddha Gosa did is he went to all of the, uh, he, he collected information from all of the most uh, advanced practitioners, the most highly respected teachers of meditation, and he compiled them into this uh, big thick volume called Vasudhi Maga. Maga means path and Vasudhi means purification. Path of purification. And so, uh, this is the result of uh, <coughs> many centuries, uh, almost a millennia, of people practicing what the Buddha taught and organizing it in more and more refined ways to make it easier to communicate to other people. And at the same time, Doing, doing something similar to what I've done. I spent my life analyzing my own path and my own progress and how it happened so that I can communicate it to other people so that they can so that they can reuse it. And that's exactly what these 18 knowledges are is that is, is as I say, it's a, the result of a millennia of people looking at their own experiences and and organizing them in such a way that they could describe the process, the, the the progress of insight to other people in a way that makes it easier to follow. Now, having said that, if you were to pick up the Vasudhi Marga and spend a little time with it, you would say easier to follow. What's this guy talking about? <laughs> um, it's and it, it, it is, but it takes. Uh, it, it was it was written. It was written for a particular audience, and it was written in a particular day and time, using a kind of language. Uh, the language that it's in, no matter how accurately it's translated, it's not a question of translation. Translated actually you can into English. The language it's in is so cumbersome and awkward, you know. But uh, but when you penetrate that, it is. It's a brilliant description of how how the process of insight, particularly the process of insight, not the general process that I've been talking about, but particularly the process of insight, where 
you take the clues that the Buddha gives you and you use them to bring you to the end of the path where you become a Buddha yourself. That's, that's what they are. They, as, as I think I already mentioned, they're, they're not about the kinds of insights we have into our daily life that make things go better. They're not the kind of insights that we have into our personality that allows us to become more the kind of person we are. This is the progress of insight that leads you to the realization of the most fundamental truths that free you from the suffering and confusion and frustration that normally characterizes life. They are stated in negative terms, these three insights. They're called the three characteristics. Um, and there's four of these three insights, which I love. <laughs> the three characteristics are impermanence, that's a negative, no self, that's a negative, and dissatisfactoriness, which we usually translate as suffering, but dissatisfactoriness. So there, there, are, three, there are three negatives. Uh, the ultimate nature of reality is something that we can tap into, but we can never conceptualize, we can never comprehend, we'll never make a model in our mind of ultimate reality that even comes close. But we can tap into it experientially. And then when we come back and try to describe it, we end up having to describe it in terms of what it's not, and what it is. This carries over into what are the insights that liberate us? They are what we give up. They're impermanence. It's the insight that leads us to give up clinging to things as being separate, enduring entities that, even though they change, are what they are for a while. No self. It's giving up the idea that there is any kind of separate entity that I am. It goes beyond that, that there is any kind of separateness at all. I said last night, no self could probably be better described. Is this microphone cutting in and out? Yes. Ah, oh, the battery's gone dead. I forget to do it. It should be no separateness. Is any kind of self the, def the very definition, the essence of selfhood is a division into self and no self. Right? Uh, or self and other than self, I would say. I should say. It's separation. And that is an illusion. And so that's one of the things we go up. And then dissatisfaction. <coughs> yeah, let's go ahead. Dissatisfaction is more. It's the realization that as long as you're clinging to illusion, you're going to end up disappointed and dissatisfied with the results, and you're going to suffer. See, dissatisfaction covers absolutely everything, from the mildest dissatisfaction with the way something is, through the most excruciating suffering that you have ever experienced or can even imagine. It's all dissatisfaction, and it all comes from not, not realizing the truth about things. 
which is the truth is what we're going to call impermanence. We're going to explain that. I've explained that in some of the Thursday nights a little more deeply. Impermanence <coughs> doesn't mean that things change. It means there's nothing but change. Impermanence doesn't mean that things are temporary. It means that things never are. There's only flux. There are no things. Okay. Um, emptiness. Emptiness is when you realize not only are there no things, but uh, there are no separate processes either in this flux. There is no separation of any kind. And that also is no self. So emptiness is a word that encompasses both impermanence and no self. And dissatisfactoriness is the derived result of it. That if you if your world view inside here sees yourself as separate in a world of things, boy are you ever going to have problems <laughs> over and over again. And is it not true? You've got problems. You may not be convinced yet that's the reason you've got all these problems. But you have to agree that, yeah, we've got problems. And so <coughs> this is where we're going, is the insight into impermanence, no self, emptiness, and dissatisfactoriness. So that's the four three things. <laughs> there used to be only three three things. But then, <laughs> then as a part of <coughs> trying to find a better way to explain this, they, idea of emptiness it came up and, uh, and it's such a good idea that e even though it, it even though it, it spans impermanence and no self it's, it's such a good idea that it deserves to be discussed on its own merits so now we have four or three things to talk about so that's what that's what this these 18 steps are about what, more questions? So this dynamic of letting go, yes. uh, uh, just struck me that the, the whole dynamic of letting go when I, when I sit down on the cushion, letting go, letting mm -hmm. go of that that it's that it covers everything that it, that we let go of things all the time. We let go of these preconceptions. Yeah. We let go of our desire for permanence. We that it's ungrasping. Um, that it could be like a central, <coughs> a central dynamic. It, 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 practically speaking, functionally speaking, yes, it is. The practice of letting go, or I would put it, let it come, let it be, and let it go. Oh. Right? It's uh, not resisting <laughs> what is. And whenever you find your mind clinging to something that is, or clinging to the idea of how things should be, or clinging to the idea of how things shouldn't be, let go. Just so, and in practice it's one of the most valuable things that you can do. As you develop insight, the grasping stops by itself, but the practice of letting go number one, makes it much easier for the insight to arise. And the second thing is that by letting go, 
by constantly letting go, you're removing the obstacles that stand in your way. So, but it's a yeah, it's a good way to put it. Very central. Yeah. So, um, the idea that things have to be set in stone, or that we have to quantify, or identify, or categorize, or separate, or just do all of these things in terms of cultures, or people, or ideas, or value, anything, just let that all go. I mean, I mean, I'm saying, let it, if you want yeah. to right. eventually have peace or quiet, mm-hmm. let it go. That's right. Let it go. It's like, it's like putting your silverware in different slots in the drawer. It serves a purpose, but it doesn't really matter. It, it, it serves a purpose, it serves a, a particular, makes a particular kind of convenience. The fact that our minds want to categorize things and want to discriminate and discern all kinds of different things is very useful to us. But to believe that it represents anything more than a temporary or immediate convenience, that it, it speaks of any kind of different, a deeper reality, or that it should be clung to in the least, you know, then that's what we need to to let go of. <coughs> <coughs>